So now we're come to 2 Kings chapter 4, page 309, if you want to use the Bible that's there in the chair or, or pew. This is, uh, we, we're skipping chapter 3. We just can't deal with every single uh, story in the time that we have. So for us, this will be the first story uh, after the passing of the mantle from Elijah to Elisha. And you'll notice here the emphasis, even as Elisha repeats some of the things in some ways of what Elijah has done, it's an underscoring that indeed God's ministry has continued in Elisha. And God's spirit is upon Elisha like it was on Elijah. Uh, to, to demonstrate God's continued work in his church And even for us, his continued grace that will be given to us in whatever he wants his church to do in this world. So on page 309, chapter 4. Now the wife of one of the sons of the prophets cried to Elisha, Your servant, my husband, is dead, and you know that your servant feared the Lord. But the creditors come to take my two children to be his slaves. She had to put them up to even have money, and now... Things had fallen through. And Elisha said to her, What shall I do for you? Tell me, what have you in the house? And she said, Your servant has nothing in the house except a jar of oil. Then he said, Go outside, borrow vessels from all your neighbors, empty vessels and not too few. Then go in and shut the door behind yourself and your sons and pour into all these vessels. And when one is full, set it aside. So she went from him and shut the door behind herself and her sons. And as she poured, they brought the vessels to her. When the vessels were full, she said to her son, bring me another vessel. And he said to her, there is not another. Then the oil stopped flowing. She came and told the man of God, and he said, go, sell the oil and pay your debts, and you and your sons can live on the rest. One day, Elisha went on to Shunem where a wealthy woman lived, who urged him to eat some food. So whenever he passed that way, he would turn in there to eat food. And she said to her husband, Behold now, I know that this is a holy man of God who is continually passing our way. Let us make a small room on the roof with walls and put there for him a bed, a table, a chair, and a lamp, so that whenever he comes to us, he can go in there. One day he came there, and he turned into the chamber and rested there. And he said to Gehazi, his servant, Call this Shunammite. When he called her, she stood before him, and he said to her, Say now to her, See, you've taken all this trouble for us. What is to be done for you? Would you have a word spoken on your behalf to the king or to the commander of the army? She answered, I dwell among my own people. In other words, I don't need anything. And he said, Well, what then is to be done for her? And Gehazi answered, Well, she has no son, and her husband is old. He said, Call her. And when he had called her, she stood in the doorway and he said, at this season, about this time next year, you shall embrace a son. And she said, no, my Lord, O man of God, do not lie to your servant. But the woman conceived and she bore a son about that time, the following spring, as Elisha had said to her. When the child had grown, he went out one day to his father among the reapers. And he said to his father, oh, my head, my head. The father said to his servant, carry him to his mother. And when he had lifted him and brought him to his mother, the child sat on her lap until noon, and then he died. 
And she went up and laid him on the bed of the man of God and shut the door behind him and went out. Then she called to her husband and said, send me one of the servants and one of the donkeys that I may quickly go to the man of God and come back again. And he said, why will you go to him today? It's neither new moon nor Sabbath. She said, all is well. Interesting statement. Then she saddled the donkey and she said to her servant, urge the animal on. Do not slacken the pace for me unless I tell you. So she set out and came to the man of God at Mount Carmel. When the man of God saw her coming, he said to Gehazi, his servant, look, there is the Shunammite. Run at once to meet her and say to her, is all well with you? Is all well with your husband? Is all well with the child? She answered, all is well. And when she came to the mountain, to the man of God, she caught hold of his feet And Gehazi came to push her away, but the man of God said, Leave her alone, for she's in bitter distress, and the Lord has hidden it from me and has not told me. Then she said, Did I ask my Lord for a son? Did I not say, Do not deceive me? He said to Gehazi, Tie up your garment and take my staff in your hand and go. If you meet anyone, do not greet him, and if anyone greets you, do not reply, and lay my staff on the face of the child. Then the mother of the child said, as the Lord lives and as you yourself live, I will not leave you. So he arose and followed her. Gehazi went on ahead and laid the staff on the face of the child, but there was no sound or sign of life. Therefore, he returned to meet him and told him the child is not awakened. When Elisha came into the house, he saw the child lying dead on his bed. So he went in and shut the door behind the two of them and prayed to the Lord. Then he went up and lay on the child, putting his mouth on his mouth, his eyes on his eyes, and his hands on his hands. And as he stretched himself upon him, the flesh of the child became warm. Then he got up again and walked once back and forth in the house and went up and stretched himself upon him. The child sneezed seven times, and the child opened his eyes. Then he summoned Gehazi and said, Call this Shunammite. So he called her, and when she came to him, he said, Pick up your son. She came and fell at his feet, bowing to the ground. Then she picked up her son and went out. And Elisha came again to Gilgal when there was a famine in the land. And as the sons of the prophets were sitting before him, he said to his servant, Set on the large pot and boil stew for the sons of the prophets. One of them went out into the field to gather herbs and found a wild vine and gathered from it his lap full of wild gourds and came and cut them up into the pot of stew, not knowing what they were. And they poured out some for the men to eat. But while they were eating of the stew, they cried out, "O oh, man of God, there's death in the pot. And they could not eat it. He said, then bring flour. And he threw it into the pot and said, pour some out for the men and they, that they may eat. And there was no harm in the pot. A man came from Baal Shalishah, bringing the man of God bread of the first fruits, 20 loaves of barley and fresh ears of grain in his sack. And Elisha said, give it, give to the men that they may eat. But his servant said, how can I set this before a hundred men? So he, he repeated, give them to the men that they may eat. For thus says the Lord, they shall eat and have some left. So he set it before them, and they ate and had some left, according to the word of the Lord. Thus the reading of God's word. Let us pray. Father, give us grace that we may know you as you are revealed in this passage, and to know our Lord Jesus Christ, to adore him all the more, and entrust ourselves to him all the more because of what your word reveals to us. We ask this for Jesus' sake. Amen. We're going to look at this uh, long passage just under two uh, points. First, provision and second, life. 
Pretty simple. Provision and life. And I'm going to crowd the last two events, the gourds and the bread, in with the first one of the oil. Because they're, they're all three uh, miracles of provision. And I think it will help us to group them together. <clears throat> and then we'll deal with the, uh, resurre- the birth and resurrection of the child under the topic of life. <clears throat> now, it's interesting in this uh, first uh, event where we don't ever even know her name, that earlier in chapter 3, verse 14, he would not even listen to King Jehoram, and he would only accept King Jehoram and listen to him because he was, was with Jehoshaphat, the king of, of uh, Judah. So here's Elisha rejecting the audience and any requests that a king would have, but this nameless woman has full access to Elisha. And Elisha, of course, represents the presence of Yahweh on earth. So full access uh, to Yahweh through Elisha. And he gave her his full attention. And it's interesting in our world how there are many powerful, wealthy, influential, famous people, but they have no access to God. And that that you have in Christ Jesus is more precious than anything that this world can offer you. Anything at all. And you have that access. doesn't matter who you are. It doesn't matter if you think of yourself as a nameless person. You know, that nobody really knows. uh, And and as I feel about myself, as soon as I'm dead and a few people that know me are dead, you know, I'm gone. And that's it. That's fine. That's the way it's going to be. But we have access because of Christ's great work on the cross coming to accomplish it at the greatest cost to himself so that we can have fellowship and access to him. And no one has more access than you. Not another human being who's ever lived has more access to Christ than you do if you're in Christ. And here, take courage from just seeing this this attention that Elisha gives to this, this woman. This flask of oil that she presents is not a sign of how much I have, right? As though she says, duh, what was I thinking? I have a flask of oil. You know, that was not that way at all. I love how Ralph Davis puts it. Oh, I see a flask of oil. There's a possibility. It's a widow's helper starter kit, right? (laughs) Just sitting there and I didn't recognize it, right? And it's the same thing with the bread that was brought. Uh, yeah, there's some bread, but it, it's totally inadequate. It, it's not, it, it's an expression of the need. We don't have enough bread. We can't eat. Uh, the same thing was said later uh, in John 6, verse 14, when they were speaking of the uh, bread. You know, he said, we have five barley loaves and two fish, but what are they among so many? Uh, in John six fourteen. So it's an expression of, of need. And uh, it, it's interesting also that when the man brings the bread, the first fruits it's called, uh, he normally would bring that to the priest, but the priest belonged to Baal now. And so he's bringing the first fruits to Elisha, who represents Yahweh, who's the true prophet of Yahweh. So there's this uh, entrusting themselves to Elisha and, and giving themselves to the person of Yahweh in their, their need. And when Jesus later, when Elisha does these, uh, 
these miracles, it shows him to be the true prophet who is following Elijah, right? This is the demonstration that Yahweh is in his midst and in their midst because of these miracles that he is doing. It's interesting, the same response when Jesus did the miracle in John 6. It's when, when these people were fed, the 5,000 people, they said, indeed, the, this is the prophet who is to come into the world. So these are evidences of the, that these men represented uh, Yahweh himself. They were the kind of conduit of the word of Yahweh and Christ, especially as the great prophet to which to whom all the prophets pointed. And isn't it uh, encouraging that our weakness, this expression of weakness, all I have is a flask of oil, is always the opportunity of God to show his strength in us. It's the regular theme of the New Testament, isn't it? As Paul talks about it in 1 Corinthians 1, uh, that uh, he has not chosen many wise, he has not chosen many uh, strong. He's chosen the weak to shame the strong. He specifically loves to work with weakness. And yet we think of weakness as it shuts everything down. You know, well, uh, I'm so weak, I'm so helpless. Uh, That's the very thing God loves to work in the midst of. And we uh, studied this a while back when Paul himself, he himself felt like, in fact, he knew at least in terms of the way things work in this world, that if God would take away the thorn in his flesh, he could do better ministry. He could be more effective for God. He just knew this was the case and he prayed repeatedly for God to take it away. But God wouldn't. And Paul said, and as a result of what the Lord said to him, my grace is sufficient for you. My power is made perfect in weakness. He said, I'll boast of my weakness so that the power of Christ may rest upon me. Even Christ himself, Paul later says in 2 Corinthians, was crucified in weakness but raised in power. So his life, you see, his very life brings those things together. And the greatest weakness, the greatest power of God was broke out upon the world. And so our weaknesses, our, our, the, the things we struggle in, the things that put us under, the things where we don't feel like we can even go on sometimes. We don't know what to do about something. I love the prayer of Jehoshaphat when he says, Lord, our eyes are fixed upon you. He said, we don't know what to do, but our eyes are fixed upon you. There's there's the focus, right? We don't even know what to do, but we're entrusting ourselves to you in our utter, utter helplessness. And so we have to ask, where are the areas of weakness? And, And am I seeing God's power show itself? To acknowledge that what I have is inadequate. What I have is, is, in that sense, worthless in and of itself. But God starts there not rejecting my inadequacy, not mocking my inadequacy. Elijah didn't just laugh and say, a flask of oil. Are you kidding me? Are you kidding me? That's all you have. You ever felt that way that God's saying that to you? You know, you bring your weakness and your helplessness and... And God's just throwing up his hands and I can't believe what I work with here. You know, I've felt that a lot. 
And of course, God never has that response. I'm making it up. It's my God. It's Darwin's God that he invents in his brain. It's not the true God. This is, this is God who embraces, who doesn't reject your helplessness and your weakness, but he starts right there and he says, here's where my strength is going to manifest itself. Here's where I'm going to do things that you couldn't expect, that you couldn't imagine will be done. Why does Paul say that in Ephesians 3? Who's able to do exceedingly beyond all we ask or think. And there is, we're asking and thinking and imagining. He's able to do far beyond that. So let's be like Jehoshaphat. Lord, I don't even know what to do. I can't even make another move. I'm utterly helpless. I simply look to you. That's a good prayer. It's okay. You know, we, we, we constantly think we've got to bring all the resources to the table. You know, I, I, I've told you this before, but my uh, choir director in high school said this at least a thousand times. And that's probably not an exaggeration. Every rehearsal. Urging us on to work hard, to practice. And I believe that God helps those that help themselves. And he quoted it like it was a verse, you know. And I know there's, you know, certain way, some truth in that, you know, that it's, we're responsible, etc. But obviously, the message of Scripture is he helps the helpless. That's what this is about. That's what all of this is about. He helps the helpless. That's what God has come to do. And how eager he is not to just give some, but to pour out abundance. Think of that. Think of the oil when you pray as Jesus commands us to pray for the Holy Spirit. And he says he knows how to give the Holy Spirit. If you, being evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father give the Holy Spirit? Do we pray to the God who provides this way uh, in terms of the gourds, in terms of the bread, in terms of the oil? And say, that's the God to whom I pray. I want to have my expectation in some way to match his eagerness to do me good. His eagerness to multiply uh, what uh, his goodness to me. So it's God's practice to make his goodness overflow. But I want to create a God whose practice is to rarely ever give me anything good. Instead of overflowing further in this passage as we think about weakness we think about how in this passage God is acting like the kinsman redeemer in scripture the kinsman redeemer would be the person who's closest in relationship to a person in debt and he takes up that debt and he pays that debt and satisfies that debt so that someone can keep his or her land, or in this case, not have to uh, sell, uh, give her children away, her sons away into slavery. And so, how much, what a beautiful picture this is of God in that more radical way, giving of his own son to become our kinsman redeemer who paid our debts in full. You see, he's providing here what she needs for her debts to be paid and their They're completely paid. And that's how Christ does for us, completely paying our debts and then supplying us richly with all that we need to serve him. And Christ's death 
uh, we were completely under condemnation. We were sold into sin as slaves. We were headed for death eternally. And yet he was given as a ransom for us, uh, our near kinsman and redeemer. And then these miracles always, uh, as they tell us about our weakness and how he will supply our weakness. And it's such a wonderful picture of how God has taken away our sin and our condemnation. They also are redemptive in pointing to the future, that uh, the future restoration of the world is embodied in these events, in these miracles. This is a, a small picture of how he's going to restore all things so that things will flow richly for God's people forever. Uh, it anticipates the renewal of the heavens and the earth, a, a paradise restored where there's no want, there's no hunger, there's no pain, there's no fear. And he gives specific instances like this that we can hang on to. It's like the bread and the wine, specific physical things that are done to say, here's a token, this is coming when God's present enters in through his prophets and through Christ himself, we get a little taste of the kingdom of God and what it will ultimately look like. That's encouraging. And many times the blessedness is pictured in terms of agricultural prosperity, as in these cases. As Amos says in chapter 9, the days are coming when the plowman shall overtake the reaper and the treader of grapes him who sows the seed, the mountains will drip sweet wine and all the hills shall flow with it. They shall build the ruined cities and inhabit them. They shall plant vineyards and drink their wine and they shall make gardens and eat their fruit. You see, the whole picture of the final restoration is in agricultural terms. We don't know all the details of what will be like, but we, this, this picture is so gorgeous for us. Or Joel 3, in that day the mountains will drip sweet wine, the hills shall flow with milk. Ezekiel 47, on the banks of both sides of the river there will grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, their fruit will not fail. And that reminds us, doesn't it, some of us? Revelation 22, where we speak of the river of life that's flowing from the, the throne of God. And on each of the banks were the trees of life, the tree of life with its 12 kinds of fruit, yielding fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. And that kind of, you know, the gourds anticipates that, but especially the next verse. And no longer will there be anything accursed. But the throne of God and of the Lamb will be in it, and his servants will worship him. All the curse. And, and we have a little picture of that in the gourds. This is what he's going to do to all of creation. Nothing evil will be there anymore. Nothing that could harm us. It will all be taken away. So how encouraging are these passages in, in our own weakness, in, in the sense of, uh, of, of teaching us afresh that we are ransomed uh, by God and that our future is so glorious in what he will do in the new heavens and the new earth. So that's provision. And then we have this amazing story of life uh, with the Shunammite, uh, Shunammite woman. Uh, she, interestingly, the, the way that it describes the, he, he, the way Elisha describes the fact that she will have a child 
the way she's standing in a doorway, the way she responds and says, no way, basically, don't, don't mess with me, don't, don't deceive me. This all recalls Sarah herself. And so we're, we're made to think of God's actions with Sarah uh, earlier. What's interesting is so many times in Scripture at a critical juncture where the line of Israel must continue or in the birth of a prophet like Samuel or later John the Baptist or the birth of a savior like, uh, like Samson or later Christ himself born to a virgin. There are these pivotal moments where the need is so great and God brings forth a child where there couldn't have been a child. But in this case, just a regular lady somewhere that was childless. And so, again, there's this emphasis on the grace of God just finding someone. And the, and the way the grace of God comes to each one of us in a very personal way. That he knows what you have need of, as Jesus says. Even before you pray. Uh, every single one of us, he knows what you have need of and he is concerned. This, this helps to underscore that for us. So she represents, as Sarah did, unfruitful Israel at this point. Israel that because of the Baals was, was dead and, and, and not giving forth life. And his life, life enters in to bring forth this son. And then this sickening turn of events. And you can just feel her pain. Didn't I say? You know, didn't I say don't mess with me? Don't play with my emotions? I didn't ask for a son. I didn't ask for this. You can just feel the frustration, which Scripture is very honest about. But in the midst of her frustration and her pain, uh, she was seeking out God's grace in Elisha. A persistent expectation. She wasn't just kicking around stuff in her house. You know, I just knew this would happen. That's the way everything happens. He was just lying to me. No, it was in his presence, right? It's fine for us to complain and say, I don't know why this has happened. You're tearing me apart down here. You know what this is doing to me. There couldn't be anything more painful than this. And you knew it. You know it. Yet, she's asking. She's, she's persistent. She will not let him go. I love the fact that Gehazi wants to pull her away from him. Because this is not proper that she should latch onto his feet. You know, propriety says, lady, you need to back off right here. Uh-uh, uh-uh, <laughs> not let go. And, and Elijah says, it's fine. She's in distress. Um, so, it's interesting how... Of course, later when Christ was on the cross, no doubt there was that same thing. Why? You called us to Christ. We had all these promises about his birth and, and, and what he was going to accomplish and how, what he's going to do in Israel. And then look at this. What a, what a great picture here and in a greater way with Christ. That what we see are the greatest tragedies sometimes, sickening turns of events, our expectations utterly shattered. That in the midst of that, God is doing something greater than we could have imagined. That's what the cross and resurrection teaches us. And it teaches us if, if in that most terrible event, most terrible turn of events, the greatest good is brought forth. 
then everything else is caught up in that. That same God is operating throughout all of our lives. And it won't save us from being sick and broken hearted and sometimes empty and numb at the things that will happen. But at the same time, we cling like she did. Cling like the Syrophoenician woman that we mentioned who came to, she's a, a, a Gentile, a Canaanite. And she comes to Christ asking for grace. Or like the blind man, Bartimaeus, in, uh, in Mark, who cries out to God, uh, Son of David, he hears that Jesus is coming, he says, Son of David, have mercy on me. And everybody around him, shut up, keep quiet. You're being... And he says all the louder, Son of David, have mercy on me. Great pictures of her, of the Syrophoenician woman who won't quit, and, and then of, of uh, Bartimaeus who will not be quiet. And I'm telling you, don't be quiet, right? Don't be quiet with your need. Pour it out to him. Never let him go. Cling to him. The very name of Israel was formed when Jacob wrestled with the angel in Genesis 32. And his name was Jacob. He says, now your name's going to be Israel. You know that what that means. It's he who strives with God. And the Hebrew is very explicit. It, the, his name and then the two uh, verbs that uh, things that say right. It's, it's that he strives with God. That's the name of God's people now? That's your name, the new Israel? You have to live out your name, right? You can't be a people that doesn't strive for God, with God, that will not pour your heart out to him. That's your name. That's what God loves to see. Jesus commented in the Syrophoenician woman when he tried to put her off. Of course, just demonstrating her faith and saying, well, the, the bread is not for the, uh, the dogs. And, and we talked about this last week. And she says, but even the dogs can get the crumbs. How great is your faith? That faith, that striving after God that will not stop, that will not turn away. And we read Jesus urges us in this direction uh, in Luke 18, he gives, I won't go through the stories, but he gives two stories of, of events where somebody, because they just kept asking and kept asking, basically annoying someone to death until they give it to him, right? Those were the pictures. And he said, be like that with God. Be like that because he said he's teaching people at all times that they must continue to pray. Continue to pray. Well, he at first just sends his staff, which probably is a a representation of his presence. We don't know for sure. But then he lays himself down just like Elijah had done, showing that he is in the spirit of Elijah He, in doing this, identifies himself with the boy's uh, mortality, with the boy's death, fully identifying himself with his condition. And instead of this making him unclean, which is normally the the law, don't touch a dead body, uh, life is given to the boy's dead body. 
And in this, in this instance, uh, we, we see that death will not have the last word. Uh, death will not rule that God will bring life when it can't be expected. There was this funeral many hundreds of years later that took place just over the hill from here, uh, just a couple of miles away. A little village called Nain, okay? Luke 7, Jesus is growing near to the gate of Nain, and here is a man who was dead, being carried out to be buried. Uh, and as Ralph Davis says, he canceled the funeral. <laughs> I love that way he put it. He canceled the funeral. And he finds out, of course, that this is the only son of his mother. And it's so touching that he saved the only son of his mother, but the only son of his father was put to death. You know, just amazing the compassion he had when he himself was not going to be saved. He told her not to weep. Then he came and touched the bier on which he lay, and the bearer stood still, and he said, Young man, I say to you, arise. And the dead man sat up and began to speak, and he gave him to his mother. Fear seized them, and again they said, A great prophet has arisen from among us. And these are... You know, Elisha was to be listened to because he was manifesting the presence of God and Christ all the more, of course, manifesting the presence of God. You'd have to say, even death doesn't put you beyond the reach of his power or the sound of his voice. that wonderful? To think, wait, this man was dead and gone, and yet the power of Christ reached into death and the, the sound of his voice reached and he heard him and he brought him back. Do you think Christ can speak into your situation no matter how deep and dark and lost you feel? You think that the mighty power of Jesus who would say to you spiritually or in whatever condition, be uh, come alive, come out, be renewed, be stirred, be changed and transformed. How encouraging this is. Uh, And then with the identity, identifying himself, uniting himself basically to the boy's condition, right? And it makes us think of Christ identifying with us so that Christ so identified with us, our sin became his sin. And he then took our sin all the way to be that sin to be punished in him. And we read in Romans 6 that he is no longer dominated by sin. So that sin covered him and drew him down into death. But then when he died, he left sin behind. Its condemnation was gone. And its dominion over him was gone. So he identified with us and our sin is left there as well. It no longer condemns us and it no longer dominates us. And progressively we can be more and more free of that sin. And we now have new life, the new life of the the creation and it will issue finally in resurrection itself. But think of what it cost him as opposed to Elijah. 
Elisha, what it cost him to identify with you and lay himself, as it were, on your death and your, your dead body, which all of us had, and then impart his life to you. He had to take on the very wrath of God that was connected with everything that you and I had ever done. The awful price of his identification. Hebrews 2, it says, The children share in flesh and blood. He himself partook of the same thing. Partook of our flesh and blood. And the punishment and condemnation that it held. And he put it away for us. (laughs) And we walk in him in this new life. The life of Christ is in us. And it manifests itself in this world. And so in closing... As, as Elisha had become basically the presence of Yahweh in the world, and he was manifesting the life of Yahweh, he was basically the culture of life that had entered into the culture of death that was Israel at that point. And so uh, bread is multiplied and, and Stew is healed and wine and, and oil is multiplied and a son is born and then a son is raised from the dead. He's manifesting the life of Yahweh in this world. He's kind of like a traveling temple, a uh, traveling tabernacle that bears the life-giving glory of God. And by his grace, you and I have become that. We are called light. We are said to impart life through the gospel. We, are, we have water that flows uh, from our innermost being to give water to other people. And so when we're engaged at Super Wednesday or Pregnancy Lifeline or, or uh, our prison ministry, whatever it is, we are manifesting life in a death culture. We're, and, and it's very difficult at times. It's hard sometimes on Wednesday nights because kids are not always obedient when they come here. They're hard to deal with at times. But this is the place of life. This is the place where they can come into what for them is the presence of God because we live in the presence of God. We know this God and we seek to manifest this God and we depend upon this God and we point them to this God. You're, you're the oasis. You're the beginning garden of Eden in this world that must continue to spread itself out that more and more people can leave the darkness and come into the light. How glorious to be a part of the provision and life of God that he has given to the world through his church. Let us pray. Lord, give us grace that we will uh, all the more manifest what you have made us to be, the light of the world, Lord, that you have made us to be the very manifestation of the grace of God in this world. Uh, We pray that you would use us in that way, that we would all the more believe and trust in your great work in our lives, in our helplessness, in our weakness, and in our deadness. And know that you find us, you give yourself freely to us, you call forth that which doesn't exist in our weakness and deadness. And Lord, those are the kind of precious things that we then in turn can speak of to others, of how God has and continues to rescue me 
and how he will rescue you as well. Make us those kinds of humble servants to those around us, we ask in Jesus' name. Amen.